Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. This is Paige, the co host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving Olive in June. Olive in June gives you everything that you need for a salon quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive in June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive in June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call. Pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. We're in Michigan this week. Heading north of the city of Grand Rapids, we find ourselves in Elgoma Township. Turning off of the main highway onto a smaller side road, we're surrounded by lush, heavy forest. Dense foliage presses in from either side of the road. We're going to pull over here. The only way to get where we're going is on foot. The forest feels dark and ominous this late at night. Dense leaves and branches pressing in from all angles. It's a good thing the moon is bright, otherwise we'd have a hell of a time working our way through the trees. Even still, there are only a few smudges of moonlight that make it all the way down to the forest floor, so watch your step. Can you hear that? The sound of rushing water? That's the river. We've got to be careful. You don't want to slip in. The current can be pretty strong when the water's high. There it is. We've arrived. That metal walkway over the water? That is Hell's Bridge. And if the legends are any indication, if we're here right around midnight, there's a good chance we'll have one hell of a show. Hidden away in the forest, this little bridge might not look like much, but it has an ominous history. Back in the mid-1800s, the people of Algoma Township were in the depths of a mystery of the worst kind. It began when one of their children failed to return home. The distraught parents began to comb the nearby woods, seeking help from friends and family. But the search had just barely begun before another child was reported missing. And then, another. Fear mounted rapidly. It can't be a coincidence. Either the children had wandered off together, or something was taking them. 
panic seized the small community. Something had to be done before they lost any more children. They gathered in the church to formulate a plan. This wasn't a time for half measures. They needed everyone to muster the full strength of the community in a focused search effort. But with everyone out searching, someone had to stay behind and watch the remaining children to keep them safe from whatever dangers might be lurking in the forest. That's when Elias Frisk raised a hand. The elderly man had been sitting quietly at the back of the church, listening to the mounting excitement of the townspeople. He would stay with the children, he told them, watch the kids and keep them safe while the rest of the adults combed the forests and fields. It was a relief for the townspeople. Elias was a kind and caring old man, both well-liked and well-respected within the community. With strict instructions to the gathered children to listen and stay close to Elias, the rest of the group set out to begin the search. For hours they walked through dense foliage and tall grasses, probing with long sticks, calling the names of the missing kids. Exhausted, with light beginning to fade, they began to head back for the night, when one of the men heard soft murmuring, coming from behind the wide trunk of a tree on the banks of the river. He rounded the tree and found Elias, huddled on the earth, cradling his head and rocking back and forth, murmuring to himself, a rope coiled loosely at his feet. And he was dirty, too, covered in something the man couldn't immediately recognize in the dim light. But as he stepped closer, he was finally able to make out the words that Elias repeated over and over. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. The devil made me do it. With the horror of sudden understanding, the man realized exactly what Elias was covered in, and exactly what had happened to the missing children. He yelled and screamed for the children they left in Elias's care while the old man continued to rock on the ground. The commotion drew the other townspeople to the scene. They were terrified and furious and pressed the old man to tell them what had happened. He had tied the children together he explained between sobs, to keep them from wandering off. Then they'd all walked to the edge of the river, near the bridge. There an urge suddenly possessed him, and a presence invaded his mind, seizing control of him, taking hold of his actions, making him an unwilling spectator in his own body. He'd murdered the children, one by one and tossed their bodies into the river. He hadn't wanted to, but the devil inside him hadn't listened, hadn't given him a choice. He was innocent, he pleaded with the townsfolk. It was the devil's work, and there was nothing he could do. Rage and pain boiled within the townspeople. They roughly hauled Elias up from the ground and, with barely a pause, slipped the rope he'd used to bind the children around his neck. They shoved him onto the bridge, out over the water, then down into the current below. His body bobbed beneath the rushing waters as he kicked and thrashed, and then finally began to drift limply. Suddenly, the waters in the river began to rise and changed from a swift, smooth current to raging rapids. Elias's body was battered about, pulled against the rope that anchored him to the bridge. And then the rope snapped, and his body was carried downstream. It was never recovered. The swift justice the townsfolk had doled out, as fair as it might have been, almost seemed too mercifully quick and kind for such a monster, and the people couldn't help but feel in the breaking of the rope that he'd somehow eluded them, slipped through their grasp.
While the little stone walkway has since been replaced with metal, Hell's Bridge is no less unsettling, especially under the darkness of night. There's a heaviness there, a dark presence that seems to swirl around the place. Walk out on the bridge and gaze down into the waters, and it's said you'll see the white, upturned faces of small children trapped within the rippling current. Their voices can sometimes be heard drifting through the trees, too. Laughing, crying, it's hard to tell. As terrifying as the voices and faces of dead children might be, one couple had an even more frightening encounter at the bridge. Visiting the site late one night, they were hoping for a scare. They walked out into the middle of the bridge, looked down at the water, and saw nothing. They listened intently to the forest for a while, too, but heard nothing. Sure, the location was unsettling, but it wasn't the scare they were looking for. As the two turned and began the walk back across the bridge, the woman, who was walking in front, was assaulted by a brutal smell. The thick, rancid, sulfurous odor of rot. She turned back to say something to her boyfriend, see if he could smell it too. But her gaze was drawn further, past him, back across the bridge to the opposite bank. She screamed, and he whirled around. Standing at the opposite end of the rusting metal walkway was a dark figure, what looked like an old man, although his features were obscured by shadow. It scowled, piercing the young couple with red, glowing eyes. The two turned and hurried the rest of the way across the bridge. Out of the corners of their eyes, they could see pale figures floating just below the surface of the water. They did their best not to look, eyes focused on the river bank ahead of them, carefully avoiding glancing down into the waters below and never looking back. They sprinted out of the woods, not slowing until they were back in the safety of their car, engine on, and doors locked. Whatever darkness haunts the waters of Hell's Bridge, man or demon, it's the sort of thing best experienced in the middle of the night alone, for full effect. Although, whether you're truly alone, that's something you'll have to decide for yourself. Let's find some fiction, shall we? Our first story for the evening comes from David A.F. Brown. David A.F. Brown was a finalist in the NYC Midnight Short Story Challenge 2019, an international competition of over 4,500 writers. His fiction has been featured in Deep Fried Horror, the monthly publication of Dead Man's Tome, and the Forest of Fear anthology by Bloodsong Books. He works as a probation and parole officer and holds a B.A. Honors from Western University. He resides in Caledon, Ontario, Canada, with his wife Charlene and their son, Connor. Children of the Night, join me for David A. F. Brown's The Peculiar Tastes of Mr. Elwood, a Tales to Terrify original. The woman snapped to attention as she heard the sounds. Over the past two days, she had heard nothing but wind rustling through the leaves, birds chirping, owls hooting, and the stirring of various other creatures. But these sounds were not from an animal. She clutched her gown and closed her eyes to better discern the noises, hearing steady thuds and the sporadic swishing of dirt. It was a shovel. Is somebody there? Help! She cried as she lunged towards the noises, 
In her excitement, she had forgotten the handcuff attached to her right wrist. The golden cuff was fastened to a short silver chain, which itself was connected to a metal pipe snaking up the wall of a wooden shed. The cuff dug into her wrist and yanked her backward. She yelped and slowed her breaths, listening carefully for the sounds. The shoveling had stopped. The woman banged her free hand on the wallboards, rays of sun flickering around the small shed revealing veins of dust and the slivers of light. Please, help me. She waited to hear the sounds, but nothing came. She stood for what seemed like hours until her legs weakened and she fell to the ground. She then sat patiently and waited for her next meal. Each day at dusk, a short man dressed as a butler arrived at the shed to serve her a large glass bottle of vitamins, as he called it. Today was no different. The man arrived as the sun was almost done setting. The woman heard keys jangling followed by a sturdy click and the creaking of a shed door. The butler appeared in the doorway in a black tailcoat with white dress gloves. He had dark slicked back hair and a crooked grin on his face. Dinner is served, my lady, he said demurely as he bent down and rolled the bottle toward the woman. Why are you doing this to me? Please, there's something wrong with my eyes. Everything's blurry. Come inside, effect, snapped the man. Not to worry. Remember to drink it all. Mr. Elwood needs you healthy for the weekend. He smiled and retreated from the doorway. She then heard the familiar clanking noises as he locked the door. The woman looked down at her meal, a bottle filled to the rim with a coagulating brown liquid. Despite its vile appearance, she was starving and it didn't taste too bad. She removed the cap and poured the gelatinous contents into her mouth. Soon, all traces of daylight were gone and she was in absolute darkness. As she drifted to sleep, she imagined the shoveling sounds and prayed she would hear them again tomorrow. The next morning, the woman awoke with her entire body in agony. Her right hand throbbed, swollen and bloodied from the digging cuff. She pursed her lips in effort to lubricate her dry throat and mouth. Once they were wet, she let out a long, deafening scream and began to sob. She remembered nothing before the shed, not even her name. In addition to her vision problems, her hair was coming out in clumps. The shed contained nothing, save for the woman, the chain, and three empty bottles. Suddenly, her mind took notice of the sounds. In the distance, she could hear the faint noises of someone digging. The sounds gradually became louder as the digger approached the shed. Please, I can hear you out there. I need help, pleaded the woman. The digging ceased abruptly. The woman pushed her face against the wallboards and peered out a crack, but could only see a blur of grass and forestry against a turquoise sky. In an instant... A glossy and bloodshot eye filled her entire field of vision. She gasped as the eye fixed on her. Hello, missus, cackled a man as he squinted through the boards. You shouldn't scream like that on such a beautiful day. Who are you? I, I need help, she stuttered as she spoke. I'm just a groundskeeper of sorts, ma'am. There's not much I can do for you, seeing that I'm under the employ of Mr. Elwood. Who is Mr. Elwood? Why has he done this to me? I I'm trapped in here, sir, please, begged the woman. The man snickered. Mr. Elwood is a man of particular tastes. Not my cup of tea, but who am I to argue? Mr. Elwood can afford to do whatever he wants. So you won't help me? I can barely see and my hair is falling out, please. Aye, common side effects, the man laughed and his eye vanished from the crack. Wait, side effects of what? She screamed. The woman heard the groundskeeper whistling as he walked into the distance. When his melody faded, her feelings of desperation gave way to a burst of adrenaline. While it would be extremely unpleasant, she knew what she had to do next. The woman stared down at her right hand, pinned underneath her knee, her thumb extending outward. 
With her free hand, she crumpled the breast section of her gown into a ball and shoved it into her mouth. She bit down hard, leaned back, and then thrust her entire body weight onto her knee. A loud crack erupted as her knee snapped the thumb, causing an explosion of pain to shoot through her arm. She grinded her jaw into the gown to muffle the sounds of her screams. After a few moments, she gained the courage to look at her hand. Her thumb joint, now crooked and misshapen, was dislodged from the socket. Still biting down hard, she managed to slide her shivering hand out of the golden cuff. She spat out her gown and released a deep sigh, trying to steady her heart rate. Finally free of the chain, the woman charged the door of the shed. As expected, there was no way of opening the door from inside. She turned her attention to the glass bottles littering the room. Retrieving a bottle with her good hand, she knelt down and smashed the bottle into shards. She felt the glass fragments on the floor and collected the biggest piece she could find. Positioning herself adjacent to the shed door, she pushed her back up against the wall and waited for the sounds of clanging metal. After 20 minutes, the woman heard the jangling of the butler's keys outside. She lifted the shard of glass and waited for the door to open. When the butler stepped inside with a fresh bottle in hand, she swung the glass deep into his neck and ripped it back towards her. A fountain of blood streamed from his artery. He gurgled and collapsed to the floor, squirming in shock as more blood quickly pooled around his head. When he finally stopped moving, the woman made her escape. She ran out of the shed and dashed across the grass. She could barely see anything, but could perceive a dim light in the distance. She sprinted toward the light, her arm throbbing, until she uncovered its source. The light was emanating from a large mansion atop of a hill. Even with blurred vision, the woman could tell that the house was immaculate and lit beautifully. Its front was decorated with two giant pillars and connected to a long, winding driveway which coiled down the hill. The woman ran alongside the driveway, away from the house, hoping it would lead to a road. As she was running, a flash of light illuminated everything around her. Moths and other insects danced in the light as the woman struggled to open her eyes. Who's there? She yelled. Just me, missus. It was the groundskeeper's voice. The floodlight switched off, and he was fully camouflaged by the night. Why are you doing this to me? I'm not an animal. I already told you. Clones aren't my cup of tea. What did you say? I don't understand. You are a recreation clone, missus. You're for Mr. Elwood's fun, not mine. A recreation clone? The woman's head began to spin. Recreation. Fighting. Sex. Hunting. You're a celebrity class. Some pop star sells her DNA for top dollar to make batches of you. For people like Mr. Elwood. It's a pity. Your hair is so patchy, but it'll do. Hair loss is common for clones the first few days. Suppose you need to get used to the atmosphere and whatnot. But the good news, you should have your sight back by the weekend, just in time for the hunt. The woman struggled to stay conscious, swaying on her feet. The hunt? Lucky for you, Mr. Elwood is an outdoorsman. Hell of a shot. Won't be much longer for you. And don't worry, I'll dig a nice hole for you, missus. Now, it's time to return to the stable. Before she could fall to the ground, the groundskeeper snatched the woman by her hair and dragged her back to the shed. No one heard her screams, as the darkness of the night swallowed her whole. That was David A.F. Brown's The Peculiar Tastes of Mr. Elwood, as read by Christian Johnston. Chris Johnston has been narrating horror stories for over two years and has collaborated with YouTubers such as Llama Arts and Horror Shorts Party. Some of his favorite pastimes include struggling to breathe in the gym after a long and much-needed workout, 
spending time with close friends and family, discussing which of Mel Brooks's films were his most quotable, and listening to bands such as Cattle Decapitation and We Are William to decompress after a long day of serving his corporate overlords. You can find his YouTube channel at Bound in Imagery if you're interested in listening to more terrifying tales. Thank you, Chris. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Our second story comes from A.P. Sessler. A resident of North Carolina's Outer Banks, A.P. frequents an alternate universe not too different from your own, searching for that unique element that twists the everyday commonplace into the weird. When he's not writing fiction, he composes music, makes art, and spends too much time trying to connect with his inner genius. He also likes to dress in funny clothes and talk about the first English colony in the New World. His most recent works include the novelette Brain Attack and short stories in A Sharp Stick in the Eye and Caravans Awry. Listen with me, children of the night, to A.P. Sessler's One to See Corruption, a Tales to Terrify original. Alice, Jasmine, and Danielle stood in line inside the large courtyard of Basilica de San Frida, where faithful pilgrims the world over had gathered to enter the famed Gothic church in the hope that they might witness the divine miracle of St. Frida's incorruptible body. Skeptics by nature, the girls added the stop on their busy itinerary for a number of reasons. Morbid curiosity, bragging rights, extra credit, but for one of the girls in particular, favor from a certain professor of anthropology. It was also the city's main tourism industry and sole reason for the construction of nearby hotels decades previously, central also to shopping and public transit. Danielle flipped through the multilingual pamphlet offered by one of the many robed clergy, each of whom carried a box with a clear plastic dispenser filled with the pamphlets mounted to the front, while its top was slotted to deposit money. Operating solely on routine, another clergyman approached and offered her a duplicate. No thanks, I have one, she said, and waved it at the man with a fake smile. He nodded graciously and offered it to someone else. Alice watched a woman take one and drop a $5 bill in his box. I think you were supposed to give him money, said Alice. It's called an offering, not an obligation. Besides, what's the point, Danielle said, 
and pointed to the text-filled page. It doesn't even show a picture of her. That's marketing, said Jasmine. It entices you to hold out long enough for the payoff. It entices me to shove it up his ass, Danielle said and handed the pamphlet to Jasmine. Heads turned at Danielle's brash speech. She challenged her silent detractors with a wide-eyed stare. Danny, please, said Alice, embarrassed. Jasmine flipped through the pamphlet, scanning the text. They could have used a better translator. Danielle crossed her arms and rolled her eyes at Alice. See, even Jazz thinks it's crap. No, it's just a poor translation, said Jasmine. But it does clarify that incorruptible refers to the state a saint is in when first exhumed. Duh, of course you'll be incorruptible in an airtight container. If you want them to remain incorruptible, maybe leave the damn coffin shut. Why is that so difficult to comprehend? Danielle said, waiting in vain for an argument. Hallelujah! A voice came from within the church just before a wild-eyed, wiry-haired woman emerged through the propped open doors, her hands waving as if she'd escaped a burning building. I saw her! She's incorruptible! Absolutely beautiful! It's a miracle! Hallelujah! Church lady at nine o'clock, said Danielle. Jasmine and Alice looked long enough to tickle some inner nerve, which prompted giggles and eyes hidden behind hands-turned blinders. The zealous woman zeroed in on the girls, and like a laser-targeted missile, she struck. You don't believe? She said, taking Alice by the wrist. You will when you see her as she is. Alice coughed when the woman's foul breath entered her nostrils, but was too polite to do anything other than look away. The woman leaned closer. You will believe when you see her, she raved. Hey, back off, Danielle said and shoved the woman who refused to release Alice. Let her go, bitch. The woman's gaze flashed at Danielle. You don't believe? Then to Jasmine. Do you believe? I believe you need a breath mint, Jesus, Danielle said and dug her nails into the woman's wrist. Let go. With a yelp and a scowl, the woman released Alice and pulled her smarting hand back, pointing with her other hand all the while. The Lord sees. It is he who tries the hearts and the reins. He will try you in the furnace of affliction. Fine, now move along, Danielle snapped back and shooed her off. The woman walked away, glancing over her shoulder several times. Keep moving, that's it, said Danielle, still gesturing a sweeping motion. Right, out the door, don't come back. Get some gum, for Christ's sake, she shouted. Alice stared at her bruised wrist, her eyes red with tears. Jasmine gently held the arm in her hands in search of broken flesh. You okay, Allie? Danielle asked. Alice looked up, a pitiful attempt at a smile on her face. How crazy was that? Pretty crazy, Jasmine said, running her hand in circles across Alice's back. You sure you want to see this? Alice nodded, her lips pursed tightly to keep from letting out a cry. When the girls reached the open double doors, they were enveloped in a blast of incense. In contrast to the fanatical lady's repulsive breath, the mouth of the church invited you to draw close, to stay and converse with the spirit deep within. They entered the dim foyer. The hardwood interior was lit only by the sunlight bleeding in from behind, and a small ceiling fixture, its cream plastic cover dingy and yellowed by smoke. A few steps later, they found themselves in the sanctuary, surrounded by congregants, heads bowed, seated in long wooden pews. A hundred whispered prayers filled the air as thick as incense, a pleasant buzz as if honeybees busied themselves pollinating a field of wildflowers. Alice took a deep, comforting breath, and her defeated countenance was at once resurrected, evidenced when the frowning corners of her mouth ascended into a glorious smile. Mm, it's like heaven, she said and embraced herself. Jasmine found herself doing the same, though hers was an attempt to stave off the frigid air conditioning meant to comfort those just coming in from the midst of a humid summer day. Danielle leaned back to speak in Jasmine's ear. Smells like your boyfriend's apartment. Jasmine and Alice fell into a fit of giggling, which they fought the next couple of minutes to stifle with hands over their mouths, only making it harder as every awkward snort and raspberry stoked the fire. Bowed heads glanced up from either side long enough to offer disapproving glances before returning to prayer. The girls' contagious laughter had mostly subsided as the line edged ever onward to St. Frida and passed, until the girls found themselves inches from the saint's glass casket. God, give me strength, Alice said before one more snort, which drew an inoculating shush from the minister waving the censer of incense. 
Alice shut up as quickly as she had snorted, ashamed that she had even given in to such human frailty. What would the professor think? The professor? Her mind had wandered in an instant to the ruggedly handsome man when she heard Danielle take a deep breath. The line edged forward. She and Jasmine awaited the subtle turn of the head, the telegraphed message informing them of what was to be expected, but nothing. Danielle passed the casket without reaction. Jasmine advanced. The whites of her eyes shone as she peered down. Her gasp pierced the veil of silence, and unlike her predecessor, she looked over her shoulder with wide eyes and gaping mouth to communicate some unspoken emotion. Then she, too, passed the casket. Alice wasn't aware she had stopped until a subtle cough and a soft word or two from behind urged her to move. She swallowed her anticipation, stepped forward, and peeked to her side, as if looking directly at the body in repose was forbidden. Of course it's not. That's why tens of thousands of pilgrims gather here yearly. Just look! She ordered herself, and she obeyed. The saint's face was split in two from crown to upper lip, like it had been struck with an axe, and appeared to be held together with but a few strands of flesh that should just one snap, the halves would spring open like a squashed nut. Though the jaws were intact, the middle teeth on both were missing, again leading one to believe the head had been struck with some object down the center. Her swollen, leathery tongue covered her entire throat, possible explanation for a peaceful death during her sleep via apnea or seizure. It was all unnerving enough, but what ran chills over Alice's flesh were the nearly intact eyes. They had rolled back puncto mortis, but were in such a state of relaxation they managed to face slightly rightward, giving the illusion the saint was gazing back at all who passed by, like a caged animal. Only it made one, including Alice, consider if she were the one encased in glass. Another clearing of the throat from behind. Alice had done it again, frozen in her tracks. She faced the short woman behind her. Scusa, perdon, she said, unsure of the stout old woman's language. Alice's eyes flitted about as if momentarily lost. When she came to her senses, she passed the casket and continued along the aisle outside the sanctuary, through the foyer, and out to the blinding courtyard. It took a moment for her eyes to adjust and her flesh to warm. Jasmine offered a wave to ensure her attention. Alice joined them on the opposite side of the stone fountain and the slowly moving line. What are you guys doing? she asked. Jasmine's gaze had returned to her cell phone screen and her fingers to the virtual keyboard. Leaving reviews. Our less than impressed reviews, Danielle added, then read her post aloud. If anyone thinks St. Frida is incorruptible, their idea of breakfast must be moldy French toast topped with brown bananas and fruit flies washed down with spoiled milk. She laughed at herself. Don't you find that just a little disrespectful? said Alice. I'm not the only one. Listen to this, Danielle said and read other comments. Death Warmed Over looks better than St. Frida. By incorruptible, they mean one who looks like a dropped melon. Better still, a drop-kicked melon. Seriously, I've seen bloated roadkill in better condition than St. Frida. Harsh, Jasmine said and glanced at Alice, her arms crossed and her face stoic. Come on, Allie, you were laughing in there too. Arms uncrossed. Only because you were, said Alice. Don't worry, my review is much more critical and sends the comedy. Alice smirked. At least somebody is respectful. A gullible lot with a cult-like mentality, isn't that how you put it, Jazz? Danielle said without looking away from her phone. What did you guys think about her missing hand? What happened there? Her what? said Alice. Hand. You didn't notice? Danielle said. She and Jasmine staring at Alice in disbelief. No, I couldn't look away from that face. Her hand was completely missing, said Jasmine. Think Mother Superior caught her going deep beneath the sheets one night? Danielle joked. Jasmine chuckled, her face screwing into disgust. Ew, gross. Or maybe she lost it in one of the sisters. I bet they found it in another casket. Double gross. That saint, unfortunately, was deemed corrupted, Danielle said, and wiggled her middle finger back and forth over her crotch with her eyes and mouth half-opened in mock ecstasy. Stop it, said Alice. People are looking. Indeed, they were. An old woman crossed herself. A young mother covered her child's eyes. Danielle pursed her lips and scratched an imaginary itch beneath her nose with an intentionally extended middle finger. Okay, then, since we've seen Sister Twisted, can we go? Alice shook her head. I can't take you anywhere, can I? I'm just saying, I don't want to have to come back because your sadistic curiosity wasn't completely satisfied. The sole member of a captive audience, Jasmine glanced back and forth, awaiting a response. I'm satisfied 
said Alice. You sure, said Danielle. Yes. Danielle smiled ear to ear. So that means I get a sandwich and breakfast in the morning? You wish. They left the cobblestone courtyard and found their way to the busy thoroughfare, where they soon hailed a cab to venture off to the city's less religious attractions. The trio exited the elevator with far too many bags. Danielle sported a new hand-knit scarf and designer sunglasses, hopeful they weren't a cheap pair of knockoffs for the price she paid, as her companion suggested. Alice wore a new wicker bonnet large enough to provide shade from the sweltering, blinding sun. When they reached their room, Jasmine swiped the room key through the card slot and turned the door handle, only to be greeted by an unbearable stench. A large pipe snaking along the ceiling had burst, and from the bowels of the hotel issued forth all manner of stinking filth onto the side-by-side beds and floor. A mass of flies had already congregated to sing their hymns of decay. Oh God, it stinks so bad, Danielle said, turning her head as she took a large step back. With the black sludge saturating the white blankets, they looked like used coffee filters. It dripped onto the floor in equally disgusting puddles filled with solid clumps of indeterminate matter. What is it? said Alice. Danielle put her bags down and buried her face in her arm. What do you think? she said in a muffled voice. Alice looked away. I don't want to. Jasmine had already dared to step inside and open every dresser drawer only to find them emptied. Someone took our stuff, she said and hurried out. Maybe it was room service, said Alice. Somebody must have called about the pipe. Forget everything I said about them. I'm seriously tipping our maid, said Danielle. Upon speaking with the front desk, the girls discovered their suspicions rang true, and thankfully so. A slightly strange odor hung in the air of their new room, something sweet yet sterile, but the girls couldn't place it. They only knew the smell was infinitely more tolerable than what they left earlier. Something the rooms shared in common were the two king-sized beds and a locked door adjoining to a neighboring room. Something vastly different was its ground floor location, lack of balcony, and zero view. Three suitcases sat neatly at the foot of the two beds. Jasmine opened hers to take inventory, surprised to find her clothes neatly folded and other items tucked mostly in their proper pockets and slots. Looks like everything's here. What about yours, Allie? Alice had already found her journal and sat on the right side of the rightmost bed. She found the next blank page and began sketching. Same. Danny? she asked. Danielle sprawled across the opposite king-sized bed, snoring softly. I'll be damned, Jasmine said, her jaws stretching into a long yawn. She shopped till she dropped. Stop it, you're contagious, Alice said, unintentionally imitating her friend. It's been a long day, Jasmine said, and slid out of her pants, then pulled her shirt over her head and off. The outfit hit the floor, and she reached across the carpeted chasm to steal the other pillow from Danielle's bed and place it behind her own. Guess she won't be needing this. She rolled over to face Alice and smiled. Night, she mumbled, and fell asleep. Alice smiled at her and finished her doodle, then began detailing the day's events, but each sentence became a labor, and soon her letters shrank and ended up near scribbles as she fought sleep. Drowse had so set in she wasn't sure if she had written or merely thought her next word, but before she could answer herself, the book fell from her lap onto the floor, and she slumped sideways onto Jasmine's pillow, her arm flopping across her friend's face. A strange sound stirred Alice from her deep sleep. It was long and low, and hardly sharp enough to fully rouse her. Had she been aware of her own limbs, she would have realized Jasmine had rolled out of her unintended clutches and now faced Danielle's bed. Voices softly muttered. You're talking in your sleep, Jazz, she mumbled, but the voices came from her left. She searched through half-open eyes to locate the voices. With the simple move of her head, the dark room went spinning round and round till the wall split in two with a crack of dull orange light, from which malformed shadows emerged. Before she could protest, heavy eyelids came crashing down upon the room like a weak ceiling, burying everything in black, feather-soft rubble. Alice awoke to muttering voices. She found herself floating between walls, but the bed was so much different now. Instead of having a spindled frame at her feet and a high headboard behind her, she was now suspended between two tall spindles, or at least they looked like spindles, and she could swear they were speaking. Avresti dovuto sarne di piu di quel gas si sarebbe adora matara prima, said one of them. She could only make out a few words, one being asleep, 
and, as if some post-hypnotic suggestion, she fell back into unconsciousness, unsure what was wake and what was dream. There were voices everywhere, and hands, fingers on shoulders, palms on backs, but everything was smeared beneath a fine glaze of slumber. The semi-conscious girls had been stripped and dressed in linen robes. Cold, damp stone dug into tender knees. A red blur moved past them, and in its midst a yellow-orange blur swung back and forth like a pendulum. Sweet fragrance filled their nostrils, immediately awakening their sense of smell, and just as soon their sight, and that of the priest and his censer, of pluming purple smoke. Alice, Jasmine, and Danielle knelt before a glass case. Its contents were at once familiar, the questionably incorruptible remains of Sister Frida on display. When the priest passed, they saw a golden altar draped in red and covered with a lit candelabra, a golden bowl and chalice, and a loaf of bread on a platter. A familiar buzz filled the room around them, a collection of mumbled prayers from the hive of faithful believers. How do we get here? said Jasmine. No answer came from the droning noise. What do you people want? Danielle asked. The priest spoke, but not to answer. Persioci tu non laceri la anima mia nel sepulcro. He entuned in sing-song, never once making eye contact with his captives, but that did little to set the girls' hearts at ease. In contrast, the mob surrounding them wouldn't turn their condemning stares away for a second. E non permettare che il tuo santo senta la cruzione della fossa, they spoke in monotone response. Damn it, answer me, Danielle demanded drawing the priest's attention for the briefest of moments as he continued to circle them, waving his censer. The prayers grew louder. Shut up! Danielle shouted, covering her ears. The priest glanced at her, fighting to hide the snarl that curled his twitching lips. He stopped and signed the cross with two fingers, and the crowd quieted. A young boy robed in white appeared from a dark corner and approached with a red pillow. Half buried atop the shimmering pillow was a gold-handled object, but in the flicker of candlelight it was hard to identify. He approached the priest and spoke too softly to hear. The priest nodded, gave the boy a pat on his dark crown, and took the object from the pillow. He approached Alice. Do you recant? he said with a thick accent. What? she said and faced her friend. What is he? The priest glanced at a woman who approached with a small book. When she opened it for all to see, Alice realized it was her journal. Beside a doodle of what appeared to be a cartoonish caricature of St. Frida's remains were the drowsy musings of what she'd observed that morning. Do you recant? the priest repeated. Of what? she asked incredulously. This isn't the Inquisition. The woman holding the journal read from it in staggered meter as she parsed the words in equally thick accent. The one miracle I witnessed in Varelli is how faithful the believers are. They ignore every indication that their beloved St. Frida is no more than a rotting corpse held together only by their delusion. The faithful have one doctrine, the lie that St. Frida is permanently preserved from the trappings of death and decay. You have no right to take our things and hold us hostage. We're American citizens, Alice declared. An altar boy in his teens, also robed in white, held three small booklets. He opened one, looked at it, then flipped another open and glanced at Alice. He held the booklet above the flame of the candelabra, and when it had ignited, he dropped it into the golden bowl. Jasmine looked at Alice wide-eyed. That's your passport! He's got our passports! You can't do that! Alice shouted. For the crime of heresy, I sentence you to death, the priest said. And before she realized he was speaking to her, he extended the gold-handled object toward her. The middle fingertip of the rigid gray hand mounted to the handle touched Alice's forehead. She gasped at the sight of St. Frida's severed hand and the chill it at once produced. She faced her friends, a small ashy dot above the bridge of her nose. Jasmine grimaced as the gray dot spread across Alice's forehead. Her auburn hair went white and brittle, extending from her scalp to the tips of her shoulder-length hair. The gray color painted black lines across her forehead, and when it continued past her eyes, they went cataract white. Then her button nose sunk inside the dark slots beneath her flesh. Lips cracked, peeled back, and went purple from loss of oxygen. Gums grew taut, teeth long and yellowed. One came loose and fell to the floor. She waved her hands before her eyes, unable to see the skin turning thin, spotted, and shriveling into cracked leather. 
She screamed, but her voice went from loud and strong to low and creaking, then silence. Alice fell onto Jasmine, dead. Jasmine shoved the newly desiccated corpse off and leapt to her feet to flee. She clawed at the crowd, making her way nearly twenty feet when she was subdued and dragged back by the three men it took to restrain her. The priest stood before her. He nodded at the teenaged boy and faced her. The boy took Jasmine's passport and teased the hungry flame of the candle. A tongue of fire licked the book until it got a good taste. Then the booklet was dropped into the ashy bowl and swallowed with a gulp. Jasmine glanced at Alice's unrecognizable body on the floor. The priest issued his sentence. For the crime of heresy, I sentence. I recant! She shouted, Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. I'm heartily sorry for having offended thee, and I detest all my sins because I dread the loss of heaven. She mumbled half-remembered prayers in tears and faced Danielle, afraid to look at the still-approaching hand. In the corner of her eye, she saw it and already felt the coolness of the fingers, though they had not yet touched her. And the pains of hell, she whimpered. The middle finger caressed her cheek. The chill and the rot spread, and like her late friend next to her, she screamed until her life and voice withered away in a near instant. Danielle sat mesmerized by the burning passport until nothing but ash remained. She looked to the fallen corpses of her friends on the floor, their names and identities consumed by flames, their bodies by decay, ashes to ashes. The priest stood before her. Do you recant? What choice did she have? She nodded. I do. I recant. The priest raised his chin in doubt. What do you recant? He said with painstaking articulation, his yellow teeth glistening in the firelight. Her gaze flashed back and forth in search of the only answer that would save her soul, her life, from the touch of death. I recant my blasphemy and heresy against St. Frida. Looking down his nose, he questioned her further. Do you find St. Frida incorruptible, preserved in the grace of God from all ill effects of death and time? She glanced at the hideously decayed body, held together in places by glinting staples she hadn't seen before. She nodded. I do. St. Frida is immaculately preserved for all time. If she wasn't, she swallowed hard. Why would the church praise her? He let out a slow breath and buried his chin in his chest, his intimidating expression unchanged. The gray hand hovered inches from her face, and because of the old man's spasmodic wrist, the cursed relic bounced up and down like a conductor's baton. She fought to hold her expression of sincerity, hoping with bated breath that the tensing of her neck to straighten but an inch to avoid possible contact with the hand went unnoticed. The hand lowered and was soon returned to the satin pillow held by the attentive altar boy, who disappeared into the far, dark corner he originated from. With another nod from the priest, two men approached the glass sarcophagus. The priest signed the cross, and they proceeded to raise the heavy glass lid. At first, the odor was pleasantly aromatic, like flowers in spring and fresh garden herbs, similar to the incense that fanned through the sanctuary from the priest's censer. But then came the secondary scents, the cold, chemical ones, that tried to sterilize the truer scents that arrived last. Awful. Death. Danielle refused to smell it, only taking the shallowest of breaths through her mouth. But it was worse than driving a long stretch of country road where a dead skunk lay unseen but slowly rotting. She observed the sweat trickling from the men's brows, the fat purple veins of their blood-red necks, the bulging muscles in their forearms that strained beneath the weight. Stand, said the priest, and she obeyed. His eyes met hers and did not stray. Touch the incorruptible body of St. Frida and show yourself faithful. The breath slowly escaped Danielle's nose. She refused to blink for fear of revealing her disgust and stepped forward. Was this to be her end? If she didn't recant, it was death by St. Frida's hand. If she did, it was death by her own coming in contact with the plagued saint. Wasn't that always the way of the church? In the Inquisition, you recanted and were killed to save your soul. During the Salem witch trials, you were drowned to prove your innocence. She swallowed her fear and thrust her hand forward, touching the clothed arm of St. Frida. Danielle's stomach convulsed in anticipation, knowing the rot would soon overtake her. She watched her hand expectantly for spots to suddenly appear. The priest's lips puckered in disapproval. Touch her flesh, he said. Danielle was frozen. Touch her flesh, daughter, he said. Danielle took another breath. Her fingers crept across the creased cloth of the embroidered sleeve toward the exposed forearm, pausing at the edge of the silky cuff as if it were the end of a sidewalk to a busy city street, or worse yet, the ledge of a great cliff leading to certain death far below. 
Her fingers leapt from the fabric to bare flesh, bare, taut, cold, gray flesh. Vomit ran from her stomach to her throat and she swallowed, again in anticipation of the rot that should overtake her own flesh. In an instant it occurred. She stared at the flesh beneath her fingertips, no longer gray, but olive and supple. Her fingers pressed into the warm skin. She gasped. Her gaze ran up the sleeve past the covered shoulder to the exposed neck, slender and poised holding up the most regal of humble chins. St. Frida's face was perfection, the rose cheeks fat with youth, the never-kissed lips full and pure. The eyes that had so instantly haunted Danielle and the unbelievers that morning now glistened with light, and surely had always. For how could a woman so rapidly transform from death to life? That would require a second miracle. The one and only miracle was that she surely had never seen decay. She had been preserved by the grace of God from all corruption. Danielle smiled. She cried. Praise God, she said joyfully. It's a miracle. She faced those around her. Do you see her? She asked an old woman. It's a miracle, she said, and gestured to the body, then faced a young girl beside the woman. Danielle took the girl's arms in her hands. Look at her. She's preserved forever, she said, and laughed. Amen, amen, the congregation answered. She looked into the wall of faces surrounding her, now so agreeable and welcoming. Amen, she agreed, and they worshipped and prayed, gathered round the perfectly preserved body of the incorruptible St. Frida. That was A.P. Sessler's One to See Corruption, as read by Tina Kolakowski. Tina Kolakowski lives in a suburb of Denver with her husband, three children, two dogs, and five chickens. She is a research scientist by day and divides her free time between all of her dependent life forms, the garden, writing, crafting, and recording. She has previously done narrations for the Dune Steve audio fiction magazine, Rish Outcast, and Journey into Podcasts. Her infrequent writing can be found on tinasjarofawesome.blogspot.com. Thank you, Tina. Well, children of the night, the hour is late, and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Support us on Patreon for access to ad-free episodes and bonus content. Visit patreon.com slash tales to terrify to sign up, or if PayPal's more your style, you can support us via the link near the bottom of our homepage at talestoterrify.com. And if you've got a minute to spare, we'd love it if you pop over to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts, and leave us a rating or a review. Reviews are huge to a volunteer-run podcast like ours. They help keep us on the charts and disturb the minds of new listeners. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Pete Morsellino, Meredith Morgenstern, Julia Zellman, and myself, Drew Sebastini. With original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed under a Creative Commons attribution, non-commercial, no derivatives license. Join us again next week as we plumb the depths of fear with more Tales to Terrify. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.